Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Hilary McBride. Hilary is a therapist, researcher, podcaster, and author of the recent book, The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Thrice. Thrice is a rock band from California. You can get connected with Hillary and Thrice in their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Every tether is tangled and twisted. They slowly sever your heart from the hole. Iron shackles, hungry jackals with eyes like coal. Today I have Hillary McBride with me, and Hillary, not only are you a recent author and a recent mother, but you are a licensed therapist and you do so many things in the world, but who is Hillary McBride to Hillary McBride? Oh my goodness. Who, who am I to myself? I suppose that depends on the day, uh, but today I feel like how I want to put my identity forward into this conversation is the person who is embodied, um, as, as a person who's curious about bodies, um, in a way that probably extends beyond my academic pursuits. I really just am fascinated by looking at elbows and teeth and how we move. And yeah, the fact that we are alive, that my body grew another body. I'm just in wonder about bodies constantly. It's, uh, maybe I should have been a physician or something like maybe, that, but maybe. I, I love bodies and I love being curious about people. And that's kind of how I understand myself when I move through the world. I've never asked this question before to somebody, but are you the mm-hmm. kind of person that when you see somebody in the distance walk and you know who they are, but you don't know who it is in the distance, but you just see them walk and you're like, oh, that's that person. But just because you get to know the way they move in the world in Uh such a way where it's like, oh, I know that. I know that gate. Are you one of those people that like is really curious about the fact that you even know that about people, Uh like the way that they walk? Exactly. That's happened. And that didn't actually, that didn't come to mind for me until university when my first dorm roommate, she had trouble with vision and facial recognition. So she would recognize people through their gate and taught me essentially how to do that. And that became yeah, such an interesting activity for us to engage in. But yes, I am a person who does that at times now. <laughs> it became very obvious to me when uh-huh. I was growing up and I had a couple childhood friends who lived like a few doors down from me and they mm. were twins. And the only way you could tell them apart from when they were, you know, when you're at your house and they're like a half block away, the yeah. only way you could tell them apart from that distance was the way they walked around. And I, so I remember being like a young wow. kid, knowing the difference between Jacob and Jared's uh, walking style. Wow, that's incredibly useful. I'll have to start paying attention next time I know some twins to figure out. <laughs> but who knew? Like that was yeah. like the little seed that was planted on why I was interested in people's bodies as well. Wow. And particularly, yeah, again, useful. And how wonderful to think about the way of movement being the thing that you identified them with instead of 
appearance. Like I think right. when in our culture, I mean, here I am, I'm just diving right in in our culture, we're used to identifying bodies or over-identifying bodies based on appearance. So often when I talk about loving bodies or being interested in bodies, people will say, but you know, that that's such a, a thing I'm trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be seen as my body. And when we dig into that, what they're really saying is like, I have pain associated with my appearance. I self-judge about mm-hmm. my appearance. Mm-hmm. I objectify myself and have learned to see myself through an external gaze. And I'm thinking about bodies in a completely different way, right? More right. like what it means to experience being a body in the world and movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we'll dive in more okay. into that here soon. So your book, The Wisdom of Your uh-huh. Body, just came out recently, and you're a person who you know is kind of in the academic world, and there is a lot of that in the book. But there's also a little bit of memoir going on. There's a, mm-hmm. you're bringing in your own story, which would it. probably make sense with a book about embodiment. Right. So as you were writing the book, what did you learn about yourself that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? Mm. I think one of the things I learned about myself writing it was that there were places in my story that I wasn't over yet right? The tool that we use often in therapy is when you're sharing something and you are the person of the therapist or the psychologist, you want the sharing to be useful for other people, but not a way that you work your own stuff out because that can get a little bit complicated with how people project their reactions onto you. If it's something that's unfinished for you and you get a bunch of reactions, then maybe it's going to activate you in a way that you can't necessarily hold the complexity of. So Mm. I was trying to pick places in my story that I felt like had some sort of uh, closure to them might be a way of describing it. Mm. And particularly with the, the chapter on trauma, I realized that in writing the story, there were things that were really unfinished. And the reason I knew that is because I could feel the sensation in my body felt alive and, uh, at times intense. There was a lot of heat moving through me, or sometimes Mm -hmm. there would be lots Mm -hmm. of tears. And I could notice how that was distinct from other stories that I shared where I've shared them more in speaking engagements or on talking on podcasts or in other things that I've written or published. And so it was really clear to me from my reaction in writing, wow, there's still some more healing work that I have to do. So that prompted another round of doing some trauma processing with my psychologist. And it felt like a really helpful invitation again, to come back to myself even more. So I can say that I'm, I am not the same person as when I started the book. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you, like I mentioned, you are kind of in the academic world as Mm -hmm. well. So you're trying to learn all these different studies Uh and you're just, you know, you're really diving into the academics of it all. So what did you maybe learn theologically or psychologically, or even about the field of embodiment itself as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know before? So a little bit more kind of like on Uh a factual or knowledge basis, what did you learn that you didn't know necessarily before? Well, theologically is it's, I mean, that's a really central Um, focus of where I think my learning was because I had written a textbook before about embodiment. And because I had been studying it academically for years, this was this distillation down of so much of the things that I had learned that Mm. really were still theoretical um, or maybe inaccessible for um, a community audience. But theologically, that was something that I hadn't really explored before. So because I'm not a theologian, to be able to speak to embodiment and spirituality, particularly from the Christian tradition, I did a lot of a lot of research that was new for this book. Thing had conversations, dug into resources I'd never dug into mm. before, and what I was 
amazed to find, uh, and this might not surprise you is that the things that I'd heard about what Paul writes about the body in the new Testament don't necessarily reflect what he might've actually been trying to say. So, Oh, Oh, that people are probably like, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Do you want me to spill the beans? Yeah, I want to. Yeah. I, I want to hear the beans spilt. Okay, let's let's hear them poured out. I've, I have a sense of where here. you're going with this, but yeah. there might be listeners who this is like the first time they've just heard uh-huh. that sentence ever, and they're like, "Wait, what in the world?" Yeah, exactly. So that that's how it was for me too. I remember sitting down with this pastor, um, a theologian in Vancouver, and saying, "Like, talk to me a little bit about embodiment." And he was like, "Well, I have to talk to you about the semantic field, of course." He's like, well, tell me more. What does this mean? And so I think he, he was illustrating to me that we use these words, body and flesh, particularly in Paul's writing, and that those two words we think mean something, or at least I was told growing up in an evangelical context, they meant something body meant the actual literal body and spirit meant kind of who you really are, something outside of yourself. Flesh meant the actual, the kind of the skin you're in. And in reading through Paul's work, this, a bunch of theologians, people had many conversations with lots of regent folk and yeah, other scholars in particularly Paul's work gave me more nuanced understanding what he might've been trying to say. And that is that he might not have been, or likely wasn't trying to communicate that our bodies themselves are bad, but that when he uses a dichotomy between spirit and flesh, that flesh is meant to be this kind of objectified, disembodied perception of, of matter. Mm. So instead of seeing matter as holy and connected to everything else, seeing matter is actually distinct, less valuable, uh, somehow subdued the kind of the devalued nature of what really is going on. So in seeing spirit and flesh dichotomously, what he's actually trying to point out is that when we are disembodying each other, when we are objectifying or marginalizing other bodies, when we are trying to take matter and say that it is less than that, we're actually moving in opposition to what the spirit is doing, which is trying to bring everything into fullness, everything into wholeness. Mm. So I speak about it, I would say with more context and more understanding and reference verses and kind of interpretations Mm -hmm. and hermeneutic in the book. But that for me was a huge takeaway because I had always been told I can't like what Paul is saying Mm -hmm. because he stands in opposition to what I value, which is the bodies matter and that the flesh isn't bad. And then it's actually the place where the spirit exists. So it was interesting to see that maybe my interpretation or what I had been told about Paul was culturally interpreted and, uh, yeah, there was an agenda there too. Yeah. That reminds me of a class that I took while I was in my MDiv program on mm-hmm. the Gospel of John. And it was taught by one of the preeminent scholars of Johannine literature. So like the Gospel mm-hmm. of John and first, second, and third John and Revelation, yeah. all of those books. And we were going into kind of the Gnosticism, which people mm-hmm. who are in the theology and Bible realm might know of Gnosticism as this, like the sort of dualism between the body and the spirit, right? between flesh and the spirit. And while there is a level of that that is happening within these more Gnostic literature like the Gospel of John, it is kind of complicated because if you read something like 
the first chapter in the Gospel of John, God comes into the person of Jesus in flesh mm-hmm. and dwelt among us, right, as the, the prologue says. And so there, there are these moments throughout the Gospel of John where you get these very, like, fleshy and earthy and physical mm-hmm. types of Jesus, yet Jesus is also talked about in the Gospel of John being kind of the most, like, disembodied, the most spirit-like. The mo- you know, we talk about the Gospel of John having a very different type of Christology. Jesus right. is very different than the go- in the Gospel of John than in the other Gospels, and it's because he's more sort of divine-like or spirit-like, yet also there are these very earthy and physical, mm-hmm. fleshy moments that Jesus has in the Gospel of John. So she didn't want to make a wholesale claim that, no, like it's not Gnostic. It is still Gnostic, but yet it's a little bit more complicated and complex and nuanced than maybe we were told growing up about something like the Gospel of John. Right. And this is like such an important thing to remember about scriptural hermeneutic anyway, is that we are reading into our understanding of text Mm -hmm. the biases that we come to the text with. So if we grow up in a largely disembodied culture where we have been told because of platonic thought and Descartes Mm -hmm, and I mean mm -hmm, all sorts mm -hmm. of different systemic influences that the bodies are bad, then of course we're going to read the text and see that and understand it to mean one thing because we're reading our existing assumptions onto what we're seeing there. Exactly. So for me to learn that maybe it's kind of like around, there's like some sort of full circle loop, like coming back to actually believing what Paul is saying, but it being pro embodiment Mm. and seeing that my rejection of his interpretation was based on a false interpretation, or at least one interpretation that I was given that I think is harmful to find myself back almost defending Paul when I had actually, I'd preached a sermon at a church a few years ago being like, here's the problem with with what Paul is saying, like so uninformed, but in a kind of like a knee jerk reaction to what I'd been told, which actually I think is really harmful. And I think a lot of people were told growing up that influenced this sense of shame in their bodies. Like if my, Mm -hmm. if my spirit and my flesh are against each other and here I am in flesh, then I'm going to eject out. I'm going to move up into my intellect. I'm going to move up into kind of my intellectual understanding of things as a way of getting away from the perils of the flesh. Right, right. Yeah, we're reading someone like Descartes or Plato mm-hmm. in Paul rather than letting the very Jewishness of Paul to actually come uh-huh. You got it. Yeah. So let's jump into your book. And okay. for those who are listening in and have no idea what embodiment is, uh-huh. if you were thrown into an elevator with them and you got, let's say, 20 stories sure. to go up, Okay. And, you know, you, you know, be the extrovert that you are, are like, you know what, I'm going to tell them all about embodiment okay. in those 20 floors. How are you, what are you going to tell them? You, you only got okay. a few, like maybe a minute. Oh. So oh, tell, tell them what's embodiment. Okay. The clock is ticking. I would say that embodiment maybe. OK, can I? Oof, I'm feeling the pressure. I'm like, the time is running. OK, so let's. Back. Okay, maybe we'll give you two minutes. OK, thank you. What I would say is I would start by acknowledging that we live in a culture that likes to think about our bodies as a prop that carries our mind around. And when we think about our bodies, we tend to think about our bodies from the outside. We think about how we look and how other people look, except if we have a problem with our bodies, then we think about how problematic our bodies are themselves. They're broken somehow, the pain, the illness, the aging, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden those things bring us back into our body, but in a kind of pathologized way. So embodiment is our way of returning to our body 
and understanding the experience feeling through the body to recognize that that's where we have been all along and understanding how that felt experience of being in a body is shaped, understood, contextualized based on what's going on around us socially and politically. Wow. That's lovely. That was like less than a minute. I th- okay. We still got like 10 floors to go oh on, Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then I could d- dig into all sorts of other things. But I think that, I mean, that's the definition that I love to use the most, that we are, we are bodies, but we have learned to think about ourselves as minds. And when we come back to our bodies, it's so important for us to recognize how bodies are interpreted, how bodies are read, how bodies are mm-hmm. shaped and our experience of that mm-hmm. through the social context around us. Mm-hmm. You made this very interesting point just a second ago about Mm -hmm. how we often sort of think of ourselves as minds and then the bodies kind of exist apart from that. Like we may Mm -hmm. have a body, but the body Uh and the mind are two very different things. And one of the things I love about the field of embodiment and also your book is we're just learning that that's just simply not true. Mm -hmm. And it's not just simply not true in the fact that we're, you know, sort of philosophically rethinking about that. We're literally learning that, like, that's just not how the physical world, the natural world is. So can you tell people about, like, what are we learning about the body that makes us rethink that sort of mind-body dualism? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of good science out there that just, like, you'd be like, what in the world that like, we know that about the body now Yeah. that like our body is actually, there's not really this distinction between the mind and the body. So tell, tell some folks about maybe the, some of the pop science around that, that oh, might sure. be interesting because that's some of the stuff that like absolutely blew my mind. I actually came from that world more from the theological and philosophical side thinking like, oh yeah, we should rethink about our mind and our body. Mm. And then it wasn't until later. I'm like, wait, actually all the science is saying that that's true. Right. Right, exactly. So I think two things that come to mind immediately when you say that are polyvagal theory. And when we are looking at afferent, efferent nerves. Um, so we know that we have about eight or nine times more amount, more data moving from our body to our brain than the other way around. So we have just an overwhelming amount of information that is moving the, the opposite direction that we normally think about ourselves as moving in. We normally think about ourselves as being at kind of up here and pointing to my head for those right. of us who are listening to the audio and controlling our body from that place. But actually we know that that's not, that's not true, that there is more data moving the other way. So then we get to start thinking about things like, well, if we shift what's going on in our body, then that shifts what's going on in our mind. Mm. Another example of this would be proprioceptive memory. So the way that our body is storing memory that's connected to peak experiences, trauma and whatnot, and our body through our senses is picking up information in the context around us and then responding accordingly without us ever having a thought about it. So you might have a, you know, a panic response as a result of encountering a stimuli, it could be a smell, it could be a sensation, it could be a posture in your body associated with a past Mm. trauma. And we have no idea why the panic is happening because our thoughts actually haven't caught up to the fact that our body is picking up sensations and responding accordingly. And then of course we have all of this other stuff. That's really, really fun to get into. So looking at the vagus nerve, this 
multi-branched nerve that connects our gut and our heart and our organs and our spinal cord, all the way up to the emotion response and threat detection center Mm -hmm. of our brain. And so our body is picking up these cues and it's telling our brain then how to perceive the environment around us. So when we say like a gut feeling, is that Uh, like a uh, literal thing that like it's our vagus nerve because it's actually connected (laughs) to the feeling, uh, central part of our location in our brain? Yeah. And I would argue that that's, I I think a big part of what's happening when we have intuition is that our body is remembering something and it could be remembering something from our lifetime. It could also be remembering an epigenetic change from our ancestors' lifetimes Mm. where something shifted, a gene expression got turned on or off based on what our ancestors needed to survive. And I'm talking like three, four, five, all the way to seven generations back. We have data to show that that's actually stored in our present day bodies that there is something that is going on that our body is recognizing as being, you know, move towards this or move away from this, or here's what might be happening next. And all of that is happening in our body without our conscious awareness of it or without our intellectual awareness of it, I should say. Yeah, that's a good point. We could totally nerd out on that because I'm in the, Uh I love like panpsychism and all that stuff. Yeah. But it also reminds me of this concept called morphic resonance. And there's a scientist named Rubik Sheldrake that came up with this theory of morphic resonance where he talks about how, like, for example, there are certain migratory butterflies that when they go from, like, let's say North America to South America, just that one way is only one generation. And so then they bear their offspring and then the offspring migrate back. However, what they've noticed is the offspring will go exactly back where their parents uh, came from. And so there's really no way of describing or explaining Uh this other than what Rubik Sheldrake describes as morphic resonance. There's something that exists within the physicality of species where information is being passed along and it's not like, you know, the butterflies are telling the other butterflies, all right, this is how you get back home. Right. There's something that exists. There's some sort of information that exists that is going from body to body. Incredible. And and so what you're kind of describing there, it, it reminds me a lot of this idea of morphic resonance. Yes. Well, I think it, it it's so important that we we have the data to prove this. I think that yes. that gives a lot of credibility, particularly for survivors of intergenerational trauma. When we mm-hmm. look at communities who have been suffering at the hands of people who are conferred the most social power, it would make sense that those people would have a fear response because of how their ancestors were treated by those people whose bodies looked a certain way or who had those positions of power. Like there, or of course it makes sense that this generation of people would struggle with this particular type of mental health issues or Mm -hmm. physical health Mm -hmm. issues. And so I think it's, it is so mystifying to me, but I think when we move beyond that, what it does is it's extremely validating for communities of people who have reactions that they have been judged for. Mm-hmm. It helps us be more compassionate to each other. We often talk about something like racial trauma mm-hmm. being, you know, what one of these things that we talk about with like epigenetics and mm-hmm. how that gets racial trauma gets passed down from generation to generation. Is there sort of like an inverse of that, of like good things that that can get passed down from generation to generation or like healing? Can that be also something that is intensified from generation to generation rather than just simply trauma? Like it's an important part uh, uh, of the piece for us to talk about as a trauma. But I'm also really always interested in 
Like, what are the good things that are being passed down from one generation to generation in our bodies? Uh Uh-huh, exactly. Well, I think that probably a prime example of that would be emotion regulation. So because we are, uh, we are emotional beings before we are ever cerebral or intellectual beings. We are embodied beings before we ever have thoughts about the world or learn mm. to experience ourselves in disembodied ways, emotion regulation, or our ability to feel emotions and understand how to navigate the world around us as emotional beings. And to do that skillfully in a way that supports our well-being. I can't necessarily speak to the specific epigenetics of it, but what I know is that communities of people who are Uh, who have been taken care of, who have been loved into fullness are better able to support the emotional needs of others, which makes them better able to support the emotional Mm -hmm. needs of others and so on and so on and so on. Because we learn to regulate emotions and experience emotions interpersonally, it's not an individual endeavor, our ability to pass things on through our affective responses that's something that I see all the time in therapy, right? People, mm. I'm a, I'm a daughter of two psychologists and I know all the time when speaking to people that my capacity to feel my feelings is intact because that was preserved because my parents spent a lot of energy working wow. on that, not shutting that part of me down. And then the irony here is that both my parents came from homes where that wasn't something that they were allowed to feel. So they worked really, really, really hard in their own therapy, in their own embodiment work to shift their experiences so that they could give me a different story. But I know that my ability to stay regulated with my daughter, because I have been regulated by and Mm -hmm. attuned to in the past. Mm -hmm. So those are some really obvious examples, but the sad thing is that our brain is wired. This is Dr. Rick Hansen's work, neuroplasticity, positive neuroplasticity. His research really has shown something he calls the Velcro Teflon hypothesis, which is that our brain is just wired to kind of consolidate and store awful content faster, deeper, Hmm. because it is part of our survival as a species for us to see a threat. uh, This is something we call the false positive response. Our species is wired to notice a potential threat and respond as if it is a threat because it's part of how we survive. If we get that wrong and we assume the other way, we see a potential threat and we assume "Ah, that's nothing, then we're more likely to actually die if it was a threat. Well, with all of this said, and you kind of were alluding it, uh, talking about your parents, but how did you even get into this world of the field of embodiment and all of this? I I find that really interesting. What's your story there? Oh, yeah. So I think there are two really significant moments for me around that. One of them was... um, I was in an outpatient program at this point for an eating disorder. So I had an eating disorder for a number of years and in and out of treatment, I was not interested in getting better. And I think that I'll just make a side note about eating disorder treatment. When I was in treatment, particularly in these kind of residential or hospital or inpatient outpatient programs, there's such a focus on, you cannot trust yourself. You cannot trust your thoughts. Your thoughts Mm -hmm. are bad. Your body your instincts, your drives are leading you to hurt yourself. So memorize this way of thinking about yourself instead of helping us trust that maybe our body is telling the truth about something we've been through. Mm. So I think I was really resistant to treatment because I felt like there was something incongruent for me about what they wanted me to do. They wanted me to become more like their way of seeing myself and what I was trying to express through my eating disorder, I would, this is my read looking back on it is that I wasn't feeling understood is that I, the pain that I was going through, wasn't feeling seen or known by the people who I was expressing it to. So I finally 
got real with treatment and decided this is something that I wanted to do. And it was because I had a therapist who didn't talk to me about my nutrition. She didn't talk to me about what the eating disorder was telling me. She, we talked about politics of women's bodies. We talked about, um, movement. We painted, we drummed, we sang, we got into some experiential realm in a way that helped me tap into something that felt like it was a voice that the eating disorder had silenced. And so there was a point in our treatment together where she said, do you notice how you're sitting in the chair? And it was really the first time that I felt awareness of my posture. I would say in my adult life that I had been living as this kind of severed head floating around the world. And I felt myself hanging over myself, not just my arm. I really say that it felt like who I was, was draped into this chair and I could feel the extension of myself through all the parts of my body. And she used that moment to compare how I first came to treatment where I would sat, I had sat in a chair, all curled up in a ball with my legs tucked into my chest. She said, do you notice that your body is telling the story of how much you've healed? And so your body has not only been the place where your suffering has been expressed, but also your body is telling the story about all of the work that you've done, how much you have overcome, how, how much more whole you are. You can actually exist in space in a comfortable way. And she told me that that was embodiment. That was this experience of, of being a body, not just having a body that was a problem that needed to be fixed. Mm. And then I went to grad school after that, and I was studying body image because I thought, okay, there's a correlation in the, in the academic literature between body image and eating disorders. Maybe if I understand how we develop a healthy, resilient, positive body image, I could understand how we could prevent eating disorders. And the, the irony with that is that body image is still this kind of self-objectifying concept because it has us thinking of ourself, of our bodies in terms of the image of the bodies, mm. not the experience of the bodies. So in my research about body image came across the work of Nita Peran, who was looking at eating disorder prevention from an embodiment lens. So how do we develop healthy, resilient relationships with the experience of our bodies in such a way that it scaffolds us or prevents this self-critical disappearing kind of harmful relationship with our image. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the second invitation into embodiment and where I started to think, wow, if this is really the way, then I need to start thinking about bodies completely, completely differently. Mm. That's incredible. We've kind of touched on this a little bit about like racial trauma and epigenetics. Mm -hmm. With so many conversations right now about oppression when it comes to race and gender and sexuality and so much more, why is embodiment a really important way of understanding oppression? We have to talk about oppression maybe systemically or institutionally or personally, but oppression embodied is a Mm -hmm. really important aspect. And why is understanding oppression in that sort of way a really important part of that kind of conversation? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this. I think that there are a few different angles we can take. So the first one is that oppression actually impacts our physiology. So when we experience oppression based on what's going on in the social context that we're in at that particular moment, we feel and live that through our bodies. So the stress accumulates and we know people who experience racialized trauma, even though there isn't a singular incident in the way that the DSM wants a singular incident for trauma to get a PTSD diagnosis, that people who've experienced racial trauma or other kinds of marginalization and the trauma associated with it 
have all of the symptoms of a PTSD diagnosis, mm -hmm. which is, I think really, when we look at it from a psychiatric perspective, it was one of the first things that we started to understand in a more popular way as giving us credibility for the body speaking up about safety, about danger, about interconnectedness, that mm. trauma lives in the body. And so understanding how trauma is felt and experienced through the body reminds us that oppression is not just this, again, this construct that we're talking about, but actually is, is about bodies right? That's the second point that I want to mm -hmm. make oppression mm -hmm. and the isms that we have are about which categories of body have been conferred the most or the least social power and how we're taught to interact as bodies about that. So we're using bodies, we're navigating space as social bodies. And then what we do with those bodies and how we as assign them a hierarchy actually then creates a lived experience of intensity or perhaps ease or fluidity or whatever it is that we're experiencing in our body as as a result of how we stack up to this kind of social hierarchy and how it is constructed about the very bodies that we are in and the bodies that we are around. Mm. That seems to be a really important point that mm -hmm. when we think about our bodies, clearly there's this physicality piece, but there's also this social constructedness of how we're supposed to understand our bodies right. or at least socially constructed to think about our bodies. Can you talk about that sort of dynamic that happens of the interplay between the actual physical body itself and the social constructions that are placed on the body. It seems like that together is what we think about when we think about the body, because it's not when we talk about the body, it's not just simply the physical aspect mm -hmm. to it. And it's not just simply the social aspect. It's the interplay between the two, it seems like. Exactly. Yeah. And this is where, I mean, before the call, we talked a little bit about interpersonal neurobiology. This is a great place to reference that as well, which is the experiences that we have socially actually shape the structure and function of our brain, which we know is deeply connected to what's happening in our tissues and through our nervous mm. system is regulating uh, our responses to things. So when we are given stories, kind of these iterations of how to experience ourselves because of how people respond to us in our body through the world, we have an experience of that. And we're sometimes given a way to contextualize that and move through that or, and a story about how someone else's story is wrong or a story about how someone else's story is right, which helps us feel more or less safe or more or less protected or at ease or more or less um, at risk in our bodies. And as a result, we're also then responding to the other people based on their bodies through our body in a way that gives them a reaction. We're, we're then responding to other bodies and based on our responses to other bodies, they're having an interpersonal neurobiological reaction, which is that they're reading what we're doing and they're interpreting it and creating a coherent narrative about themselves and other people, which then they take to other social situations and they you know, project onto other people and their bodies and those people's bodies are reading those cues. And we're all kind of passing these messages that are constructed and very, I would say, material back and forth between each other, which if we're not thinking critically about, we can start to internalize as being objectively true. I mean, there have been so many people who've mm. been told by social interactions, your body is bad. Your body needs to disappear. Your body doesn't get to exist here. And mm. if we're not thinking critically about those and understanding how that that is a construct that is passed down by people who have the most social power, or there's an agenda going on there, mm. it can feel like it's true. It can feel like that's the most real thing about me is that this perception of my body is the truth. And therefore my body is bad, which is why I think we need to put into our social discourse, 
critical thinking about embodiment so that people at all levels with all different intersecting identities can understand the stories that shape their lived experience, including those of us like who have social power in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me to understand that my body signals something because Mm -hmm. of my whiteness, because of my thin privilege, because of my, uh, my age, even thinking again about this, I did a lot during my pregnancy, what the message of my pregnancy signaled to other people about my fertility and how that was this intersecting place of both vulnerability and power in a way for depending on who I was around. Like we need to be thinking critically about these stories so that our felt understanding of our body can change when we are in a situation where power is stripped of us or somebody isn't necessarily as aware of how their embodiment is impacting other people that we can start to kind of deconstruct that a little bit and create spaces for all of us. I think where all bodies get to exist, where all bodies are read and seen as good. Staring up across the wreck, a single figure stands erect, the shout and waves are tiny and absurd. I would imagine for my listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with embodiment, but are really intrigued Mm -hmm. by what you're saying, like what are some practices that they can do to start to not only recognize their embodied privilege, but also ways for them to heal within their bodies from some of these oppressions, whether they're people who are experiencing oppression or maybe their bodies are the type of bodies that have historically been the oppressor and everyone who sort of is all in between. Right. Okay. So that's, (laughs) I wrote a book to try to answer that question. But one of the things I would, I think I would come back to is recognizing that we are emotional bodies. And so emotion is not just an intellectual construct or a label that we give what's happening, but is a series of physiological processes. And our emotions can tell us a lot about what we've been through and what we're feeling in the moment. And so this seems to be perhaps one of the most salient intersecting points that I can think of. We have emotional reactions to the experiences of other people's bodies or what they're doing or how they're making room for or not of our bodies. And so, for example, I think a a thing that I encounter lots is people who have embodied privilege, but are reluctant to acknowledge that and experience a ton of defensiveness when someone is trying to point out, Hey, Mm. there's something we should think about here. So the defensiveness is a protection against an emotional response, which is otherwise uncomfortable or overwhelming, or that we don't know what to do with. And if we, as people who have different experiences of social power, get better at feeling through the discomfort and not defending against it in us and not needing to shove it down. We are better able to tolerate the discomfort that we experience Mm. in conversations where people are asking us to reflect on power. So I think that emotion regulation is actually going to be a really important tool for dismantling body hierarchies. Because when we are self-aware enough to know that we're having a reaction, but we also have the tools to respond to that appropriately, then we don't need to make other people's pain or stories go away because it's too uncomfortable for us. We can tolerate our own pain, but then we can also enter into conversations and, and a response, a living 
a living response with longevity to it because mm. we can easily burn out if we don't know how to regulate our emotions and we're trying to do really good justice work or hear other people's pain and we don't know how to metabolize that and move it through us. Mm. So I think that a secondary point to this is that empathy actually is the result of us being able to feel feelings in our bodies. It is not just a perspective taking exercise, which is cognitive alone, but it is our ability to feel inside of us, the things that people feel inside of them with resonance. Mm -hmm. So if you experience pain about something, my ability to do empathy Ooh, is to feel that pain in me, which is meant to mobilize me, to intervene, to create some sort of lasting change for both of us mm -hmm. because of that pain. But if I am disconnected from my emotion, it's going to be really hard for me to do empathy or hard to do that in a way that comes with the energy to create the change mm -hmm. that's needed. Two of my best friends are married and one of them recently went through a very traumatic medical event. And because they've worked so hard on their relationship with one another, there was a moment where the, the person who was going through the medical event was getting like surgery or something. And there was a moment where it was kind of dicey for a second. And in that moment, even though his husband was not in the room, in that moment, that very second, his husband started to experience this pain, this like real like pain that probably uh, could have been measured. And he was experiencing, I think it was like in his throat or in his chest. And it just so happened after the surgery that they started telling him about, okay, we Incredible. went through all of these different things. There was a moment here where it was a little dicey. Your husband started to experience all these things around like his chest or throat or something along those lines. And his husband was like, I literally experienced that right there. Like it was, ex it was as if I was getting surgery with him. Wow. Wow. I believe it. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that to me is just a great example of like how when we have built such strong relationships with certain people, those mere neurons are like they're mm -hmm. so close that we almost end up having the same experience in the world that our consciousness almost becomes one. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. Hey, and think of the implications of that, right? Like if we are if we are seeing people as not other, if we are seeing people as part of this extension of our family and we are working to be attuned to them empathically, it would make sense that we would want to intervene on other people's behalf when we, when we saw and felt their suffering, it mm -hmm. would hurt us too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So your body just mm -hmm. bore a body of another human being recently. It's true. It's true. So what has your body <laughs> taught you recently? What are you learning oh from your body? Gosh. Well, I mean, there has been a kind of a number of almost psychedelic like experiences that I've had where one recently I, I was breastfeeding my daughter and we have an apple tree in our backyard and I put her down after feeding her and I went out and I picked an apple from the tree and it felt like everything spun out into a kind of interconnectedness where I saw I'm feeding my daughter from my body, but the earth is our mother and she's feeding mm. us from her body. And I understood in this very, again, deeply physical way, sensory way, how we have been fragmented from the earth, how the, or we have seen ourselves as separate from the earth and we abuse the earth and we don't think of the earth as alive, or at least I really felt it in a new way because of the experience of feeding wow. my daughter from my body. So of course, this is like, I'm not the first to make this claim. And, and there are many, many people who've talked about how the creation of the hierarchies between like, what is more like mind and what is more like body is the center kind of central dividing point between 
how we've created these hierarchies between male and female and, you know, the earth and humans, and, you know, this body cannot be subdued and it is more unruly like the earth. And so it is bad, that kind of body, whereas these bodies have are more refined and more pure. And so they're good mm-hmm. and they have more power, right? We, we see this split, like anything that is like the earth, the body of the earth is bad. It is unruly. And we have forgotten the earth in this, in our cultural way, Mm -hmm. in our colonial way. So I think my body as mother and seeing all of the ways that mother is everywhere has been deeply powerful for Mm -hmm. me in a kind of eco-spirituality sense, I would say, and a kind of eco-feminist sense. And then I think there's, there's just a new level of trust in my body for two reasons. One, I had a deeply powerful and empowering birth experience and felt like I met myself in a new way in terms of the kind of resources that I have as a body. But the second piece is that I cannot look at my daughter and think anything critical about her beingness, that it's, it's not possible for me. Mm -hmm. And to remind myself that I am like her, that everything I think of her body is also true of my body is yeah, is deeply healing to love someone else's body in this way, to make their body, to want to nourish and feed and protect their body and see the goodness of it. I don't, I mean, my husband and I were talking about this the other day, no rough fabric has ever touched her skin. It's just for people who've had babies, they know it's just, there's fabric everywhere in a new way. And it is all soft fabric and it is Mm -hmm. lovely. And she's always wrapped up in cozy. And then I had this moment in the shower. I was like scrubbing my skin with something that was really rough. And I thought like, Oh, skin, is that hurting you? Like, oh, I would never scrub my daughter's skin that hard. Like, does that, did I just like kind of dissociate for a moment and hurt myself? Um, so I don't know. I'm thinking about care for the body in a totally new mm-hmm. way because of her. Sort of along those lines of that psychedelic mm-hmm. experience, I recently watched this documentary about fungi. And mm-hmm. what's really interesting is the myocillin uh, of fungi that exists all underground usually will because there's millions and billions and even trillions of networks of that all all around the underneath the soil mm-hmm. trees their root systems will actually utilize that myocillin right. because it's all networks and they actually like a like a older tree will right. send information through the myocillin which is an entirely oh different species will send information through the myocillin to its offspring trees Right. And it almost in this sort of like mothering type of way, like sending information like, hey, here, here's what's to know about being a Incredible. tree, a young little wow. a l- young little sapling. But they, it utilizes like other species, an entirely, like an entirely different kingdom of species, by the yes. way. It's just incredible. It brings me back to what you were saying about how this, the mind-body divide, it doesn't exist. Exactly. Like it's, we've made it up. And we actually know, I wish that materialism and kind of hard science wasn't the only way that we would come to believe that, but it seems that that helps our, helps our kind of rigid thinking or our perceptions enough to convince us that we are seeing that there is no divide between the mind and the body. And it makes me wonder what will we know in 20 years about the ways that nothing is disconnected from each other. Nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing is disconnected from anything else that there are these networks of communication that are happening through all of us all the time. And I think to understand embodiment is to get, get a little bit closer to that because we are more sensitive to the felt and lived experiences of other bodies Mm -hmm. as we become more connected to our own. Yeah. Just in the same way that quantum physics 
will not make a distinction between space and time. They always say right. space time. Right. We really should be doing the same thing with mind body, like mind body. Uh-huh. Like it should mind just body. be one word. There might be some difference, but there's no uh-huh. separation. Yeah. The degree of difference is, is is so minute that they almost become one. I think you're right. How do you hope that this book inspires and liberates people? Mm. I hope that it helps people feel connected to the goodness of their body. And I think that when we have a deep trust in the goodness of our body, that we naturally want to protect and honor the goodness of other people's bodies. So I think it changes our self-experience and I think it changes our cultural experience. Mm. And so my hope is that, that there is healing, that there is, that there is excitement, that there's new sensation that takes place as people read this. And really, I mean, I laugh at the irony of it all the time people will probably listen to this book on audio or they will read it and it will become a series of ideas and it will move away from the thing that I actually want it to be, Mm -hmm. which is an invitation to return back to what was there all along. Mm -hmm. I I think it is so funny that we write books about sensory experiences um, because we know to exist as minds first. So many of us in in our culture that we have to go into the body through the mind. Uh, But I hope that is what happens, that people go into their bodies, that they put the book down because they're reading something and they have a reaction and they stay with that reaction Mm. and they get curious about the reaction. So really like read the book or don't read the book. What I want for you to do is be connected to yourself. And Mm -hmm. if this is a way to do that, then that's great. Wonderful. Last question, Hillary, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Sure. Uh, HillaryLMcBride.com is my website. I post a lot of stuff there. Hillary Leanna McBride on Instagram, Hillary L. McBride on Twitter. And then I have a podcast out uh, with CPC podcast called Other People's Problems. And that is where you can listen to me do therapy with my patients. Wonderful. Where can people get the book? Uh, they can get the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, if you're overseas, you can get it on Book Depository. I'd love it if people could support indie retailers in the purchase of, uh, purchasing of this book. And in Canada, it comes out November 9th. For, so for those Canadian listeners, it is coming for you. There is a totally different cover. Uh, all of the O's and U's are in the correct places, et cetera. Hey, I love that. That's <laughs> what you did there. I live in Minnesota, so I'm like kind yeah. of like unofficially Canadian, right? Right. right. Some of? people might confuse that. Yeah. Yeah. When they're <laughs> listening to you too. I, I'll say about. Yeah, you will. I bet you will. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Hillary. This book is incredible. It's one of my favorite books that I've read this year. And not only is it a book that I want everybody to read, but it's also a book I really need to read more because it's going to be an important part of my thesis. So thank you so much for chatting about it. Oh, such an honor. Thank you for your curiosity and your time and your interest. It means so much to me. If you'd like to connect with Hillary and Thrice and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.